Welcome to episode 131 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Well, we are at it again with a continuing conversation about the atonement. How stoked are you for this? I'm super stoked. I love talking about the atonement. Yeah, so do uh, I. We had a lot of great feedback from our episode last week, so I'm stoked to get into the next uh, theory here. Yeah, I'm really excited as well. And before we do that, though, we got to get back to a little affirmations and denials, a little A and Ds, if you will. A and Ds, yeah. Yeah, so should I go first or you want to? Why don't you go first? Okay, so I am affirming with baseball, but not exactly in the way everybody might think, like in a more specific way. So here's my, my plea to everybody. It's, you're never too old. It's never too late to get into baseball, even if you know nothing about it or you haven't experienced it before, which might be hard in America. But if you haven't, you definitely should. And what I'm specifically affirming with is a particular way of enjoying baseball, which I submit to you is the absolute best way. And that is to listen to it on the radio. Because there's like something wonderful about the narrative that has to take place for baseball announcers when they do it on the radio. And you can get this great app. It's called MLB At Bat. And for $20, you can get access to every radio station that broadcasts baseball, both the home and the away game. So I'm affirming this week that everybody should go out and download that app and just try it. Because I know that people say that baseball is boring and it's slower, but I, I think that's actually its greatest strength because it has this wonderful cadence where you can do something while you're enjoying baseball. You can have a conversation with a friend, you can eat a hot dog, you can wash the dishes, and you can have it on in the background, and you're getting all this kind of wonderful storytelling that happens at the game. And then, of course, like when something exciting happens, like there's this rise in pitch, you're going to be aware you know, that somebody just like hit a home run. And so you get to enjoy so many more things. It's not like basketball, which is also a great game, but like you have to devote your focused attention to it because if you turn away for a second, you're going to miss something. Not so with baseball. So... I'm totally affirming with baseball. Everybody should go give baseball a chance. You know what I'm saying? So you're telling me that the reason I should listen to baseball is because it's boring enough that I don't actually have to pay attention to it. Is kind that what of, you're saying? Kind of. I just think it's a great game because it has a, I want to say like a measured leisurely pace. And so that means it's perfect for like multitasking, like folding laundry or just hanging out or relaxing. It's very relaxing. So I think there's something beautiful about the game and particularly beautiful when you get to listen to it. So that's, I'm, it's kind of a hypothesis. Like I'm throwing it out there for people to try it out. I'm just going to let you have this one. <laughs> <laughs> You're super gracious. Thank you. I'm just going to leave it go. Thank you. All right. Well, what are you affirming this week? So uh, the first thing I'm affirming is writing clearly because what I wrote on my piece of paper here is E-T-S. But when I glanced at it real quickly, I thought it said E-F-S. And I about I got really <laughs> mad for myself for a second. For some reason, I was like, did I did I become a heretic? Um, I'm affirming the Evangelical Theological Society. So I had an opportunity uh, yesterday to participate in my Northeast Region ETS meeting, which was hosted at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which was uh, my alma mater. And it was just such a great day to just really like spend time with brothers and a few 
few sisters, but mostly brothers in the Lord and be serious about theology, but also in the midst of like fellowship. So it was a wide range of seminary students. There was people with PhDs in theology, seminary professors, pastors, people from the community who are interested in theology, sort of random people like me who aren't, aren't seminary professors or students. Well, I guess I'm a seminary student now. Um, so it, there's there's a region in, or there's a meeting in every region. Um, you don't have to be a member to go to the meeting. Um, you don't have to have an advanced degree to become a member. So I would encourage everybody to check it out. Um, if you go online, look up Evangelical Theological Society. Um, the cost of membership, um, I think, is like $35 a year. But that actually gets you a quarterly journal. So it more than pays for it that you have access to some of the, the m- kind of newest scholarship coming out of the evangelical world. And I was thinking about it that it's kind of vogue in reform circles to sort of like lament the passing of evangelicalism and sort of like be post-evangelical, not in like the uh, cultural post-evangelical way, but like there's like a distinct reformed way to be post-evangelical. Right. And it struck me that part of the downfall of evangelicalism is that the more serious theological traditions like the reform tradition or in some ways the Lutheran tradition or the reformed Baptist tradition, we've kind of abandoned the evangelical world. So we stopped going to evangelical seminaries. We stopped participating in evangelical theological society. Um, So I was excited to get involved because I can start to rejuvenate that. I can start to interact in a way that sort of reinvigorates that. I was able to bring um, some kind of distinctly reformed thought to the question and answer. So I'm affirming the ETS. It's a great organization. Um, The local chapters do a lot to kind of uh, address theological issues that are going on in their particular areas. Um, And it's it's inexpensive and it's just a lot of fun. It's a chance to see people from all over your region. Um, I've started to recognize faces and people are starting to recognize me after several years of going. So it's fun because you kind of go and you get to like see an old friend that you haven't seen for a couple of years. So definitely check it out. You can just look up uh, Evangelical Theological Society on the Internet uh, and anyone can join. As I said, Um, you can join as an associate member, even without any sort of advanced degree. That's a really good recommendation. That's probably better than my baseball one, but it's pretty close. <laughs> well, the thing is, you could actually listen to baseball while you're at the ETS meeting, because apparently you don't have to pay attention to baseball to enjoy it. <laughs> that's, that's not what I was saying. <laughs> but I love that. That's yeah. now the case I've made for baseball. That's I mean, my maybe, takeaway. Maybe some people are thinking, well, if I listen to baseball while I'm doing something else like folding laundry, isn't that going to cut into my reformed brotherhood listening. It's and true. That's just a risk I'm willing to take for everybody. It's true. I- I'm not willing to take that risk. Yeah. And that's what makes you so great on this show. <laughs> Your dedication. So uh, in terms of things we're denying, it is April 7th, right? And I just did my taxes yesterday because I just do not enjoy doing taxes. And I'm affir- or I'm affirming, I'm denying against taxes. But once again, not for the reason maybe everybody thinks, because I actually have no problem being taxed. Although, like many people, I do wish maybe my tax dollars went to different purposes. But in obedience to God, I'm happy to pay my taxes. What I'm actually denying against specifically is the tax filing system in the U.S. It is so laborious. It's ridiculous. Inefficient and awful. And if you compare like our filing system 
against like somebody like Australia. Like in Australia, my understanding is people literally just get like a postcard in the mail that's all filled out for them because the, the government has all the information. And all you have to do is say, look at the card and be like, yes, this is right. Send it back. Why can't we do that? So I'm just yeah. denying against how even if you have TurboTax, it's still really, really frustrating and like soul sucking process. You know what I mean? I agree. Yeah, it's much easier. When Ashley and I first moved here, um, we moved from Connecticut. So we both had income in Connecticut. There was some glitch in my paycheck where I also had income in Massachusetts. Nice. And then I had I had income then now in New Hampshire. And then Ashley had income in Vermont. So we had to file taxes in four different states. Everywhere. And it was painful. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, that is painful. And where I live, so I grew up in New Hampshire, which has no income tax because it's awesome. Although they get yeah. you other ways, but there's no income tax, right? So when I moved to Pennsylvania for the first year, I remember I filled, I did my taxes. And then somebody later that year had asked me how it all went. And they said, well, how did you file your, your state and local taxes? And I was like, say what? <laughs> How did you file those? And I was like, one more time, I have to file something for the state and for the local government? So I actually I actually didn't do it and had to go back. Like I wrote a letter, called some people. It, by God's grace, it turned out fine because I think they were honestly like, are you serious? You didn't know? And I was like, I am. I was literally just did not even cross my mind because that's never been something I've ever done before. So they, they were super gracious. But I'm just, again, not taxes themselves, but totally deny against the, the return process here is just straight awful i'm just picturing someone being like hold on a second let me go speak to my supervisor <laughs> and they go back to the back and they're like this guy says he didn't know that there was income tax <laughs> and the supervisor's like oh yeah it's a likely excuse and the person's like no i i think he was serious like yeah it, i think a, he really didn't know that there was an income tax that's exactly how it went because there was a lot of conversation with the there, it was a woman in fact it was almost like you were there there was a woman i was speaking with initially and she was like you got a w2 right and i was like yeah and i now notice that there is some new boxes i was unfamiliar with <laughs> that mentioned the state and the local government but I never looked down there before. So, yeah, I honestly think she was a bit surprised. Like, she was like, you're being really honest about this. And I was like, well, it's my fault. I, I mean, if there's a penalty or whatever. And they're actually really chill about it. So, yeah, that was great. But it still was painful. Yeah. Well, most likely you get, just gave them a longer interest-free loan at that point. <laughs> so they probably weren't too broken up about it, I would guess. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was really just a filing, but it, it what did have me. I was like, man, I'm going straight to jail. But yeah, <laughs> everything ended up okay. So how about you? What are you denying? I'm denying grammatical arrogance. So Ooh. last week we had this fun little joke with this strange kind of spam email <laughs> that uh, we got from some IVRH something or other uh, telling us we had won uh, a spot. We were shortlisted for the top 50 healthcare firms in the country, uh, which is funny because she emailed me again to ask me if I got the email and I wrote back to her and I was like, I, I, we're... We're a theology podcast, so but so, I'd really love to know how this happened. And she didn't write back to me, but but we made a big deal out of the fact that the email said Caesar's Palace with no apostrophe, uh, and how that was surely an indication that this was spam. <laughs> and then literally moments after we shut off the recording, I looked up Caesar's Palace and realized that there is no apostrophe in Caesar's Palace. Who knew? So, 
I don't really know grammatically how that works. Like what what if it's just a feature of the fact that like Caesar's is written in like these this sort of like pseudo Greek pseudo Latin looking characters. And if it's like a typographical thing or whether the word itself actually shouldn't have an apostrophe. But when when you type it out, it, it matches the way that the logo looks, which has no apostrophe. So sorry to the people who thought uh, that we were a healthcare firm, that we made fun of you for not using an apostrophe. <laughs> Is it possible it's a palace for Caesars? Like there's multiple they're going Caesars? With? Yeah. Like this would be suitable for any number of Caesars, historically speaking. I don't think it is. I think it probably really is that just that the logo is supposed to be written in this weird sort of like pseudo Latin characters. And so like an apostrophe just did like they didn't use apostrophes in Latin or in Greek. Right. So I think that's probably what it is. Um, I, I guess I don't know. Somebody find out for us. It could. I guess it could be that it's the palace of Caesars, like multiple Caesars. Right. But I, I don't know. I don't know. Somebody so he, needs to find the history of, of yes. that name and why it doesn't have an apostrophe and let us know. Yeah, I think we got two challenges this week. The first is figure out what's going on with that Caesar situation. If that is more than one Caesar or if we're just talking about the font that like Disney used on the movie Hercules and that's it wasn't available exactly. in that particular font. Yeah. Second challenge would be if you live outside the U.S., tell us how awesome your tax return policy is so that we can get the U.S. to follow something that's similar. It's never going to happen. <laughs> and the, the reason why it's never going to happen, I'm sure this isn't going to surprise you. It's never going to happen because the government actually collects more taxes for most people. And so they want to make it hard to file because if you fail to file correctly or you forget to file, then that means they get to keep your money that they stole from you. Yeah, that's true. But that's, and it's, that's why at we that point, stand at up. At that point, it's actually stealing from you because they've taken more money than they are entitled to take. Right. Not this, not the whole like taxation is theft, like Warhammer that the libertarians um, toss around all the time. But yeah, that's that's why they make it hard. And maybe it's not that they make it hard, but that's why they're not. It's convenient. I, that's, there's no vested interest in making it easier. Right. Because right. most people, the people who actually need to pay taxes they are going to make do it no matter how hard it is. And the people who don't actually pay taxes, it's beneficial for the government to have it be hard. So you miss you miss out on tax credits and refunds and all that fun jazz. Get up, stand up. Yep. That's what I'm saying. Yep. So that's as good as any for a segue <laughs> into our uh, continuing conversation on the atonement. And we're talking about all these different theories that try to explain or enumerate what the atonement is, what Christ accomplished on the cross. And this week we're talking about satisfaction theory. But before we even get into any kind of conversation about that theory, I want to play a voicemail that we received this week. So here it is. Hey guys, this is uh, Sean Grogan calling from Orlando, Florida. I just uh, wrapped up the Christmas Victor episode, so I just uh, wanted to run something by you that I kind of had kicking around in my mind for a little bit. Um, in terms of different theories of the atonement, I was wondering if we could connect that at all to uh, Christ's role as prophet, priest, and king. And so you have different theories of the atonement that sort of emphasize those different roles. So Christus Victor would emphasize more of the kingly role. You'd have penal substitution kind of emphasizing the priestly role. And then there's like moral influence theory or recapitulation or something like that that maybe would kind of fit into more of a prophetic aspect. And so uh, by viewing 
the atonement through those different roles, you can have a way to balance the different theories to sort of give kind of a more holistic picture. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Let me know what you think. Thanks. Bye. So I think this brother's name is Sean. It's a little bit tough on the voicemail, but he does bring up a good point. And this is something that you and I mentioned last week, I think. And that is that many of these theories of the atonement do tend to center on one or the other roles of Christ, either as prophet, right. priest, or king. And we're going to get into that a little bit in the satisfaction theory this evening. But I think there's also something interesting that what we're kind of looking for, I think, as we evaluate these theories is one or a couple that really center and are, are able to kind of unite all of the roles of Christ and not conflate them. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the atonement, as we mentioned, is so multifaceted um, that, you know, you have to be careful not to simplify it too much because there's a lot going on. Right. But also at the same time, if you're not careful, you can sort of let it multiply into almost an infinite kind of just a mess of different thought. So there's actually a book that one of my professors from uh, seminary wrote called Atonement, Law and Justice. Uh, the the author's name is Adonis Vidu, uh, which just side note, Adonis is just such a phenomenal name. Yeah, it it's is. just an amazing name. But um, the book is really good. Um, I don't I don't necessarily agree with all of his conclusions, but what it's really useful for is he kind of goes through the history of the development of atonement doctrine and then also the history of uh, like philosophies of law and justice. And what he does is he actually shows how at different eras in history, different uh, models of justice were dominant and that the, the way that the church reflected on the atonement often lines up with those models of justice right. and with those models of law. And so what's important for us to recognize is that that's not a feature that's limited to um, to atonement, right? So you can see similar kinds of things actually happening in, in Trinitarianism. Um, the, the analogies that are used, the way things are explained maps up with predominant cultural trends. But what's really helpful with this is, as we said, since the church never had like a full on controversy to sort of like settle the question, um, we have to understand the historical trajectories. So that that's atonement, law and justice by Adonis Vidu. Um, I would really, really suggest people think about picking it up. Um, I think it's published by IVP. There, there's probably an ebook version available by now, but it's it's a paperback book. It's not super expensive, but it's very good. And that's a great example because in the satisfaction theory, one of the champions of this particular theory is Anselm. And he is certainly, well, we'll get to that because I want to distinguish between kind of the reformed understanding or view of the satisfaction theory and then Anselm typically and kind of more specifically how he articulates it. And I'm just going to say, like, totally at the top, I have this issue with Anselm where I want to call him Aslan. I have no idea why, <laughs> but that, there's nothing more embarrassing than when you're having a pretty, you know, deep intellectual conversation and you mean to say Anselm and you come up with Aslan and everybody's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's just one of those combinations of, I don't know, consonants. So let's talk a little bit first about like the, how the Reformed kind of view atonement and the satisfaction theory. Because when we're talking about the atonement, 
I think it's clear to us that God is manifesting his gracious love toward us, but at the same time, he's manifesting a commitment to his own righteousness and justice. So we kind of go naturally to this idea that justice is served by the work of Christ, who is satisfying the demand of God's righteousness, and he's thereby maintaining God's commitment to righteousness and justice. So God satisfied the demands of his righteousness by giving to us a substitute who stands in our place offering that satisfaction toward us or for us rather. And there's like some marvelous graciousness of God in the midst of that. Like this is a really deep thought just by itself because God's grace is illustrated by the satisfaction of his justice in that it's done for us by one whom he has appointed, but also by one who has gone volitionally, you know, kind of in the pactum salutis. So it's, it's God's nature as the judge of all the world to do what is right and the judge who does what is right never, ever violates the canons of his own righteousness. Right. So I think in kind of the typical reform view, the satisfaction theory focuses a lot on propitiation, which of course is like this idea that Christ's work is the satisfaction of God's righteousness. And, and we're underscoring that the satisfaction with Christ, which Christ rendered in his vicarious obedience to the law as a covenant of everlasting well-being on our behalf. So God's wrath is satisfied and propitiated by the perfect sacrifice that Christ makes on our behalf. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, sort of, I'm not sure that I would say there's a distinctly reformed satisfaction theory, but when reformed folk want to talk about the satisfaction elements of the atonement, it ends up being kind of like an attachment to penal substitution. Yes. Right. So, so Christ, and we'll we'll talk about penal substitution in depth in its own episode, but um, Christ suffers our punishments in a substitutionary fashion where, where we have a punishment, Christ steps in and, and bears that punishment. And so we don't have to. And so God is satisfied because the punishment has been fulfilled where other models of, of um, satisfaction theory that don't have that penal element, um, I think miss the biblical data that that's obviously the main critique, but they fall short of the reformed understanding of satisfaction because what it does is it allows, um, it allows God to be satisfied without actually having the demands of his justice met. And that usually is in place because in older models of, um, satisfaction theory, justice isn't actually even really part of the equation. Um, When we get into Anselm's model, we'll see that, but it's not so much about justice as it is about honor or about um, status or something like that. And so once we get into, and I've said this before, is that it's no, it's really no um, accident Uh, And I'm talking about historically, it's no historical accident that the rise of penal substitution as a dominant model for the atonement um, in the Protestant world. It's no accident that the two primary advocates are Luther and Calvin, who really brought it to the forefront. And both of them had legal training, um, right? Uh, Luther was almost all the way through his his legal training as a lawyer. And Calvin had also had had certain legal training as a lawyer. Right. So it's no it's no accident that two people who had training in the justice system of their day and were minded towards legal and forensic categories brought about penal substitution atonement theory in turn. And, and that's not to say there wasn't penal substitution in, in sort of nascent forms prior to that, but as a distinct theory, they brought that about. But, um, 
they did not abandon, and specifically Calvin did not abandon the sort of satisfactory element of the atonement. He was he was very fond of Anselm's view. He he speaks very highly of it. He uses a lot of the same language. Right. Um, so we should we shouldn't we shouldn't draw too firm of a line between penal substitution and sort of vicarious. Uh, satisfaction theories, um, although there is some distinctions, and and I don't think the earlier models quite get all of the data. They don't quite account for all of the biblical data that we see. I agree with that. I think this does sometimes get added as the adjunct because it makes good sense biblically speaking and logically speaking, and I would say yeah. evangelically speaking. Probably, if you were to ask somebody just off the street or coming out of the church church on the Lord's Day to explain atonement, it's going to go in this direction that somehow Jesus satisfied on our behalf the penalty that was due us. In fact, one of the most memorable te- memorable testimonies I've ever heard at a baptism was at a church I attended that we did this baptism on the shore of this river. It was it was always glorious. And they always, before every person was baptized, they would always give a little testimony. And I remember there was this young boy, maybe I would say like 11 or 12, who's being baptized. And when they asked him, you know, how did you come to know Jesus? How did God save you? His testimony was basically like, my parents explained to me that Jesus took my spankings for me. And there's something actually very beautiful about that expression. You know, this, yeah. this understanding that there was a penalty that ought to have been paid and that Christ has fully satisfied all that the justice and the law of God required on the part of mankind as the condition of there being admitted or us being admitted to the divine favor and eternal happiness that is in God. So there's, I think we tend to go there naturally because we sense the cross as something where there was punishment that was meted out. And that punishment yeah. obviously was not on Christ who was like us, but was without sin. But what's beautiful about this, like I see just the, the amazingness of this theory in terms of it trying to explain and enumerate the complexity and beauty of God's grand arc, arc of salvation is since the demands of the law on sinful men were both kind of like what you're saying, preceptive and penal. So in other words, like going back to Moses and how God is administering the law through Moses saying the condition of life is do this and live while the penalty set on disobedience is the soul that sins will die. It follows from that, that any work which will fully satisfy the demands of the divine law on behalf of men must include two things. It's got to be one obedience to the full law to earn the condition of life. But at the same time, number two, suffering which the law demands as the penalty for sin committed. And here we have that exactly coming together in consummate harmony in the person and the Godhead of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, um, uh, we're kind of previewing our penal substitution episode, but where penal substitution falls down is that you can have penal substitution without Christ's active righteousness, right? Yeah, true. You, you can, you could in theory, have just the passive righteousness of Christ, that Christ only suffers the punishment that we deserve, um, and you have penal substitution theory. But where satisfaction theory is strong is that it actually requires a righteous Christ to come forward and to to come before the Father as the obedient one in order to obtain sufficient honor or to to satisfy the debt of honor or the debt of whatever 
um, on behalf of the people he's representing. Um, so, so that's where you really have to understand. You kind of have to have both the penal substitution element and the satisfaction element. They have to go hand in hand. And if we miss either of those, th- that sort of cooperative venture there, then we end up with a distortion of what the Bible is actually teaching regarding the atonement. Yeah, right on. So let's throw everything we just said up against Anselm's, also known as Aslan's, theory of satisfaction. <laughs> so we've got uh, Anselm, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's chilling in the 11th century, and he pens a bunch of stuff, but in particular, this little slender volume called Cur Deus Homo, translated, Why Did God Become Man? And in particular, he has like a really strong view against the patristic understanding of ransom theory, which we've talked about uh, before. Right. He, he levies all this criticism. And so he champions this satisfaction theory of atonement, which, again, generally at the top supports the idea that Christ's death made a satisfaction to the Father for sin. But here's what's interesting, and this goes back to your point, which I thought was so good about how we are influenced by the time and place in which we are and by the society in which we live. And so he takes a cue from the paradigm of feudalism that characterized his society. And he focuses more on the notion of making satisfaction for God's wounded honor rather than the appeasement of his righteous wrath. So how do you see that as like a big difference in understanding satisfaction? Yeah. So this is, this is really hard for us to get our heads around in a culture that that just isn't, it just isn't really how we think. So um, the closest kind of analogy would be like if um, you know, Here's a good analogy. So when um, in the Bible, when um, I forget his name, but the guy whose name means fool, um, Abigail's first husband, David's coming through and David um, sends messengers to this man and says, um, we've been very good to you. We protected your flocks. Um, We need you to give us some food uh, as we travel through. And he basically says, buzz off. I'm not interested in helping you. And he kind of like tosses this veiled threat out. Like lots of slaves are running away from their masters and I don't even know who you are. And it's kind of like a jab saying like, really, you should be, you should, shouldn't be running away from Saul. And there's a veiled threat that he's going to turn him in. Um, David's honor, his, his, his honor is offended. And so he, his messengers come back and he says, everyone get your swords. We're going to wipe them all out. And so what penal substitution would say is Abigail, um, the guy's wife would come and she would be killed and that would satisfy the need for David to kill somebody. That would be the penal substitution version of that. But instead what happens is Abigail comes and she presents this offering to David and says, please, Lord, don't, don't kill my husband. Husband, he's a foolish man, um, you know. Uh, but and, and I didn't even know that this was happening. If I'd known this was happening, then I would have taken care of your servants appropriately. And basically, David is appeased because the wound to his honor has been uh, has been restored right. because this woman who has come before him and not only has lavished what he demanded, but has gone so far and above and beyond what he had originally asked for that he can overlook the offense of the the man who offended his honor. And that's, that's what Anselm is basically getting at is that mankind as a whole. And that's something that's important for Anselm's argument is he's not really conceiving of individuals in terms of this theory. So it's not, it's not as though Christ satisfies the honor debt for each individual person, but Christ is satisfying the honor debt for mankind as a whole, who he's representing. So there's a, there's a universality to the atonement in, in this model of satisfaction theory that we have to account for is that mankind, not only in their original fall in, in, 
Adam, but all of the subsequent sins against God have generated this infinite honor debt. And so the only way that God can restore his honor is to wipe out all of humankind, to punish them all in hell forever. And so Christ, uh, Christ is sent and incarnates in order to become man. So as, as a representative of mankind, he can generate a sufficient amount of honor and glory for God, that when he offers himself as a sacrifice in that supreme act of obedience, that it satisfies the honor debt, which is, uh, which is required of mankind. And so now that the honor debt has been satisfied, God is free to forgive or to accept individuals as he sees fit based on their repentance. So there's a, it's sort of like a little bit of Amaraldianism where there's a condition set forward, that condition is met, and then there's a secondary condition for the application of salvation to individuals. So it's important to delineate that because there is definitely a substitutionary element in here. Right. Right. This actually all can, this whole series came from Tim Shorey and, and it, this call came after I had a long conversation with him based on a seminary question he had, which was really tricky. That was basically said that the, the, the uh, Anselm satisfaction theory is a penal and substitutionary B penal, but not substitutionary C not, not penal, but substitutionary or C not penal and not substitutionary. And the answer is that it's not penal, but it is substitutionary because Christ is substituting for mankind in that he is the one who's substituting, but he's not substituting by taking our punishment, right? He's substituting by generating the honor needed to pay the debt that we could not. Right. You're right. This is a little bit challenging for us generally because we're not in this paradigm. We're not in that frame of mind when it comes to understanding honor, especially at a sovereign level, because mostly because of, at least for you and me, like our, in particular, like our political environment doesn't lend itself toward really understanding right. this at the level that he's speaking about it. But, and I think there is a, a danger here that we can look at his argument and say, well, this sounds weaker than what we just said in terms of the satisfaction was about justice. And here he's saying satisfaction is about honor. And that seems like a weaker argument, just like, well, an insult, just get over it. Right. I think in many ways they're connected. In some ways he's saying that some of the same thing, but, you know, Anselm saw sin, like you said, is dishonoring the majesty of God. And so he makes this contention that a sovereign, some kind of ruler, all powerful ruler may well be ready in his private capacity to forgive an insult or an injury, but because he is sovereign, he cannot. So in other words, because he is over the state, he represents the state in its entirety, right. almost outside himself in a transcendent sense. The state has been dishonored in its head and appropriate satisfaction must therefore be offered. So right. if God is the sovereign ruler of all, uh, it is not proper for God to remit any irregularity in his kingdom. So here we have Anselm arguing or Aslan arguing that the insult sin has given to God is so great that only one who is God can provide satisfaction, like you said, so that there's a kind of the substitution in a way. However, sin is committed by one who is man. So man would be required to offer the satisfaction. So right. he's concluding once again, like we said before, the one who is both God and man is needed. And hence again, we arrive at Jesus Christ. So it's, th it's really interesting for me to think about, because I think this does help for me to round out a little bit, my understanding, because it's easy for me in our society where we have judges to say, okay, I totally get the justice thing. Like somebody did wrong. Somebody needs to be punished. It needs to be paid for. But this idea right. of honor is almost foreign in our culture now because of who we are, especially our politicians. And so I, but I think it's important to consider this idea of honor. 
Yeah, and you know that it, it, it's hard for us to think about this in the realm of like justice, and that's part of why it is, is because this isn't really about justice in the way that we think of justice. Exactly. Um, and so, so it might be something more similar, like. Um, you know, I have a manager at work. My manager has a longer tenure than I do in in our in um, in the institution, and so as a kind of a junior manager, an administrative supervisor, um, it's not unusual for me to write an email to somebody and then realize after I've sent it that I'm kind of punching above my weight class, right? So so I send an email to somebody kind of demanding that they resolve a problem that we're having, and I recognize all of a sudden, oh, crap, that person's like a director, and I thought they were a manager in a department. They're actually like a director over a section. And so my manager then has to go and kind of smooth over the, the offense Maybe it's by saying like, hey, you know, you and I, we go way back. We go way back. We both start around the same time. Um, and Tony didn't really mean anything by it. He just, you know, he he's just very passionate about his job. And, and you know, we'll make it up to you later. So so when you need a favor, let us know and we'll take care of it. That's something a little bit closer. I know that sounds kind of smarmy, but, but that kind of thing happens all the time in the world of business where right. there's some sort of offense against someone in a higher station than you are. Um, maybe it's maybe it's somebody in another company, right? You're, you're working on a negotiation with another company and you you accidentally say something that's insulting and you didn't realize it. And so you have to you have to utilize some shared connection that you have who can come in and kind of like smooth things over for you. It's not really shady. It, it's just the way the world works. And so in the feudal system that Anselm was working on, there was actually like specific ways that that played out like in a formulaic sense and so he's building on that kind of understanding of the world that sometimes you offend somebody and you need someone else to come in and help you overcome that offense right Right. And in, in that kind of system the offense the, the the punishment for the crime is much more intrinsically related to the dignity of the one offended than it is to the actual severity of the crime. So, you know, you think of like the, the fairy tales where like, um, you know, like the woodcutter wanders into the king's land hunting deer and he happens to shoot a deer where, you know, if he was 100 feet closer to his land, it'd be fine. But since he's on the king's land and it's the king deer, king's deer, he earns death. And so then, you know, then his daughter comes forward and offers to marry the prince in order to satisfy that debt of honor by uniting those families. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about, in at least in Anselm's model of um, of the um, satisfaction theory. That's a really specific example using deer. I don't know why that's rights. always the one I go to. Like I sit and I think <laughs> about good. like Be Beauty and the Beast, maybe where like he wanders yeah. into the castle. Yeah, that's and true. so he comes into the castle, and then the beautiful princess or the beautiful daughter has to stay in the king in the castle to sort of appease the beast because of right. his wounded honor. Yeah, and that's there's no less satisfaction or sacrifice there in a way, and and that's where I think there's something that's really nice and thoughtful about and some approach because any adequate theory of atonement will vindicate God's righteousness and restore his honor. That must yeah. be present for it to be a legitimate understanding of atonement. And I think this is something, at least for me, that sometimes just I washes over me and washes by me because I'm so focused on this justice and punishment thing, which is also right to consider. But we go to Romans 1, where Paul is setting all this stuff out to the Romans, really putting them in their place. I mean, he's writing things like, for although they knew God, they did not honor him 
as God or give thanks to him. And as a result of that, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the fact that lack of honor to God is is connected with a sense of futile thinking of punishment that God is turning us over. That part of that is because we failed to honor him in a plenary sense, which involves both obedience and then justice as well is significant. So it's not just to say, well, again, like this is a, a lesser argument, really what we should be talking about is justice. And Nelson just gets it wrong because he gets focused on tradition and roles and hierarchy. So I don't think it's all what he's saying here, but there is a hierarchy in the world in which God has created. And of course, God sits at the top of that hierarchy. And so therefore, there is a sense of where we have substantially dishonored him to such a great degree that that alone should be worth any kind of punishment that we deserve. Yeah. Yeah. Let me read something real quick that I think um, this is this is actually something that came up at the conference yesterday that was really kind of paradigm shifting for me. But I actually think that this um, this is a pretty viable sort of model or, or proof text to sort of demonstrate this. So, um, and it's coming from a strange spot, so you just have to bear with me. But if you look at Revelation 4, starting in, in verse 11, um, and then through the end of... I'm just going to go through the end of chapter five. So um, the the scene is there's the 24 elders. They fall down before the throne. They throw their crowns down before the throne, which is, again, like an act of of fidelity and, and obeisance. And they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were existed starting in and then chapter five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within on within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, and this is key, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign forever. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the Elders fell down in worship. So now here, here's the connection is that this text is primarily, we, we sometimes think about the lamb being worthy to open the scroll as um, somehow talking about like strength or might or some inherent ability. Right. But if you read the text, 
the worthiness of the lamb is directly connected to the fact that the lamb is God, the lamb died, and the lamb was raised again. And so what we see is that, you know, in verse 11, this word worthy, which is axios, this word worthy traces all the way through this chapter. And it's talking about the dignity and honor, which is due to God in 411, due to the lamb. And because of that dignity and honor, the lamb, which he's received this dignity and honor, in light of his divine nature, but also in light of the fact that he was slain and has been raised again, he is worthy to open the scroll right on. because he is worthy of honor and power and glory. And so we have to run, we have to look at this and say the, the reason that the lamb and, and this is probably a little controversial, but I think I can justify it. Opening the scroll is not necessarily just about unleashing judgment onto the world. That's right. certainly part of what happens. But you also have to look at the fact that the scrolls that are opened also contain the documentation of the book of life. So the, the lamb is worthy to open the scroll because he has died and was raised again. And because of that, he's affected our salvation in opening the scroll. So the, the worthiness, the honor of the lamb is directly connected to his ability to save us. And so when you connect this to the satisfaction theory of the atonement, the lamb had to come before, uh, had to come before God and be able to say to God, I have done what is necessary to restore honor to your name. Right. So, so when we have someone, the reason, one of the primary reasons, and this is, this is a key, go straight back to the fuel era and it's just persisted in the legal justice system. The reason that treason is punishable by death is not because it possesses or presents any sort of outsized danger to the state, but because it's an affront to the honor and dignity and security of the state. And so right. people who, who commit treason against the state are subject to death because they have, uh, they have offended the state. It's the same reason that if I, if I assassinate the president, I'm probably going to get the death penalty. If I, if I kill a homeless person on the street, I deserve the death penalty, but in terms of temporal legal justice, I'm probably not going to get that. And, and it's because of the dignity and the honor inherent in the office of president in our country. The treason is treason against the state, which has an inherent honor and dignity to it that needs to be restored. And the only way to restore that is to put the traitorous, treasonous person to death. That is where we need to get to understand Anselm's model of the, the atonement. Now, as we said earlier, I think it I think it misses the boat in certain areas. I think that there's there's parts that it doesn't quite doesn't quite pass muster. But overall, that concept that God's honor and his dignity was offended and that that honor and dignity had to be restored and that either either the way to restore it is to punish the one who's offended the dignity or for someone else to step forward and overcome the dishonor with an an overwhelming amount of honor to out to counterbalance it. Right. That's the core of the the atonement theory here. And I think that that's not a bad core. There's actually a lot of truth to it. Yeah, I agree. There must be someone who can bring forward a full restoration of that honor that was sullied. And that's going to, ha- that has to happen. I think, like I said, in any kind of fully orbed understanding of the atonement, that element must be present. And all of these different theories have different types of outworkings. And one of them that I think is interesting that follows the lines what we were just talking about in terms of, well, why do we feel so strongly that treason does deserve the maximum penalty? 
you know, I don't think we're the first ones to ask that. So in fact, like in the middle ages, there were all these questions raised about the propriety of stating that the atonement of Jesus was made necessary by some abstract law of the universe that required God's justice to be satisfied. And that ge- this gave rise to this kind of so-called like ex lex debate. So in the central question of that was, is God apart from law or is he under the law? And so this raised the issue as to whether God's will functioned apart from any law or outside any law, that's the ex lex name there, or whether the will of God was itself subjected to some norm of righteousness or cosmic law that God was required to follow, and therefore his will was exercised under law. And I think that's a great debate even for us to kind of chat about briefly, because that is one of the logical outworkings. If you're tracking with this theory and trying to understand, well, why was the satisfaction necessary? Why is treason so horrible? Under what kind of law? Is that a, a natural law? Is that a law God is subjecting himself to? What say you? Well, and that, that's the key, right? Is that it's not, it's not a law that's external to God, right? right? It's an affront to God's actual nature, which is where, where the law flows from. So I, I wouldn't, I mean, God's not under any law. God is not, God is not bound by any sort of compulsion that comes from, from outside of his own nature. And so the, the need for a satisfaction of honor or satisfaction of justice or whatever it is, is not because there's some, some law that both we and God are subject to, but that God himself sets the standard based on his own moral perfection. Right. I'm totally with you on that. So, and I think that's basically how the church has affirmed it kind of since basically what you just said. So, right. I mean, this idea that God is both apart from the law and under the law insofar as he is free from any restraints imposed upon him by some law that exists outside of himself. So in that sense, he is apart from the law, not under the law, but at the same time, I mean, God is obviously not arbitrary or capricious with the works according to the law of his own nature. So I guess like God is a law unto himself. I mean, there, there's a reflection, not a spirit of like lawlessness within God, but that the norm for God's behavior and God's will is based on what I think Orthodox theologians call like the natural law of God, which is not like the law of nature, not like this expression of, you know, political theory and theology. That is what we find when God discloses something in nature itself, but just the distinction between kind of what the Westminster divines had in view when they spoke of the natural law of God was that God operates according to the law of his own nature. And that's, uh, that's a real thing. It's hard for us, I think to, again, really articulate, but there is a real honor there that has been tarnished and something needs to happen for that to be made right. Kind of like what you said before you, there could be a propitiation for sin, so to speak, that does not provide a restoration of honor. That is theoretically possible. And so right. Anselm was obviously coming in hard, especially against the ransom theory, to say, no, 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 this must be taken care of. You don't understand. And and I think at least he gets he gets that right. So like before we kind of wrap it up, and I think you kind of mentioned this, what would you say is perhaps like one of the biggest errors or gaps in this particular theory of atonement that you feel it, it you can't just set this one up as the entire explanation of the atonement? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think... Um, the main error is that it actually makes the cross not necessary. Yeah, so right. um, the, the cross in Anselm's view is sort of the supreme act of obedience. Um, it's sort of the final, uh, the final act, which, which uh, pushes the honor balance over the edge, I guess. Um, but that's not to say that there wouldn't have been other possible ways to generate or to, to have enough honor to overcome what was going on. And, and this, I actually just chalk this up to, um, 
there are certain impulses in Christianity that are just so instinctive for those who are regenerate. Um, you know, the, the illumination of the Holy Spirit on the text actually prevents us from making certain kinds of mistakes. And so, you know, uh, Athanasius kind of does this in a certain sense, too, is he has so much of an emphasis on the incarnation that he, he actually almost kind of overlooks the cross. And Anselm almost kind of does the same thing, where, where his model is so focused on the active obedience of Christ that the passive obedience of Christ or the, the suffering obedience of Christ is minimized. Right. And so um, the same way that we could in a penal model, we could actually have such an overemphasis on the passive obedience of Christ that we lose the necessity of an active obedience of Christ, which happens all the time with reform folks, right? We forget, we forget that Christ, um, Christ didn't float down from heaven as an adult male, go to the cross, die, and then float back up to heaven. Then he had to live an active life of obedience to, to, to be able to accomplish our redemption. Um, You can commit the same error in the opposite direction with the, with Anselm's model. And that's where I think Calvin's Calvin's development of it is so important is that I, he saw that and he said, wait, we, we need to go another step further. We need to have, we need to add this penalty element. Um, you know, the, the Westminster um, Shorter Catechism talks about one of the ways that Christ uh, operates as priest is in his once offering up himself a sacrifice for, uh, to satisfy divine justice. And so that, that, that element of turning over for where it's no longer just about honor, but it's now about just about satisfying justice, satisfying the demands of the law, satisfying the curses of the covenant. That's still a satisfaction model, but it becomes married to this penal substitution model. And that's where we really get strong. So as long as you don't lose the passive obedience of Christ, the necessity of the passive obedience of Christ in especially the cross itself in your satisfaction model, um, I think you're on pretty solid ground. And I'm going to riff off that a little bit, too, because the way that at least I read Anselm and the satisfaction theory generally is my conviction is that it undervalues expiation and atonement. So I yeah. think that the Bible explains to us that the cross has these two dimensions where it's propitiation and expiation. And this idea that our sins are removed from us and remitted by having our sins transferred or imputed to Christ who vicariously suffers in our stead. It, very similar to what you're saying, I think. Yeah. And so God is satisfied and our sin is removed for us in the perfect atonement of Jesus. And that fulfills the dual sense in which sin was atoned for on the old covenant day of atonement, both by the sacrifice of one animal and the symbolic transfer of sins of the people to the back of the scapegoat who was then sent right. into the wilderness, removing the sins from the people. So I think it just tends a little bit to undervalue expiation, which is in a sense to say it undervalues the cross to some degree. But that's yeah. where I just see that there is for me at least a gap in again it being plenary as it should. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, you know, we mentioned it earlier is it does have this universal election uh, flavor to it where, where at least Anselm's version of it. And and so I would say any non-reformed, non-Lutheran version of this um, and, and even some Lutheran versions of it, the, the atonement is universal in that what it accomplishes, it accomplishes for everyone right? Uh, in reference to the, the, to Anselm's model. And so, so Christ, Christ uh, recapitulates um, humanity, all mankind, and then he satisfies the honor debt for all mankind. And then there has to be these other conditions, which I don't think Anselm ever actually got to. I don't think he ever really explains 
how it is that if the honor debt is paid, then some still perish. Um, you run into the same problem in Athanasius that if if the human nature is healed because of the incarnation, then and we'll talk about this when we get to the therapeutic models, I'm sure this universality to the atonement can't account for how some still ultimately perish. So that universal element to it, again, if not tied to a penal substitution model, which makes it particular for a particular set of people, um, you know, Christ didn't just pay the honor debt for all mankind. He paid the honor debt that I owed as a person. Right. And he also sacrificed himself and suffered on my behalf as a penal substitute, as well as a, a propitiatory satisfaction. Um, those those things, you can really slide off the rails pretty fast if you don't keep that in view. And that really brings us full circle, because that, I would say, is a major distinction between what I would say is a typical Reformed understanding of this theory and Anselm's version. It, it, yeah. I think on his part, it's a classic case of the error of confusing and separating the benefits of Christ from getting Christ himself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's no real union with Christ necessary in no, it's no, not, no personal it's not union necessary in, in Anselm's model. It's, yeah. it's a corporate union with corporate solidarity with humanity as a whole that Anselm is emphasizing. So you lose that personal element of union with Christ. Right. It's just well. like a general fidelity to mankind by way of representation right. without any yep. kind of personal connection. Exactly. Yeah. So, right on. Well, we are going to start something new. We're going to start wrapping out our episodes uh, with, uh, we haven't quite landed on a name for it, but I'm just going to call it spiritual conferencing, which is kind of an old Puritan term. Um, basically, what we want to do is we want to share, you know, just real quick, three, four minutes each, what it is that God's been teaching us uh, in the last week could be something we're reading in the scriptures, could be something that we're reading outside of the scriptures, something that we learned in church, a sermon points, anything. So I'll start. Um, I've been doing, um, I've mentioned a couple times, I'm doing sort of an intense reading plan. So I, I've been, my goal is to make it through the entirety of the scriptures three times this year. Um, and so I'm, I'm recognizing, first of all, how small uh, of the overall volume of the Bible, the New Testament actually is because I've got 21 days, 22 days left, and I'm still in the prophets. So there's the, the, the New Testament is just a small portion, which that in itself is something that God's teaching me that I need to be more well-versed with the Old Testament because the majority of our revelation comes in the form of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Yeah, sure. But what I'm learning spiritually is just how prevalent the Trinity actually is in particularly the prophets, right? I was reading, I mentioned it the other day, I was reading Ezekiel and all of a sudden it was like this seventh angel, that's Jesus. And then you're reading right Daniel and all of a sudden it's like straight out of the book of Revelation where there's a, the ancient of dates and then there's a man, Daniel goes, falls down on his, on his face and all of a sudden a man comes and taps him on the shoulder and says, stand up and don't be afraid. And like, that's exactly what happens with John in the book of Revelation. So I'm just... I think I've always kind of instinctively understood that the Trinity is not absent from the Old Testament, but God's really been impressing on me that his revelation is complete and comprehensive. And part of it being complete and comprehensive is that he didn't leave the old covenant saints entirely in the dark. Like I'm becoming more and more convinced that the prophets understood the Trinity, right? Moses understood that there were three divine persons, even right. though his writing doesn't necessarily reflect it explicitly. Um, we see enough kind of glimpses of it that 
I don't remember where it is, but the scriptures say that, you know, the Lord doesn't hide anything from his prophets. So we can't really imagine that um, I might have made that up. I feel like I didn't make that up, but <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to look that up and make sure I didn't make that up. But but the prophets are brought into the divine counsel of God when, when they're That's being true. delivered the prophecy. And so you can't I can't imagine that Daniel would be coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days and not understand that the Son of Man is also God. It just doesn't make sense. So that's just something God's been teaching me through my study of the prophets. That's a good word there. I love that. I mean, that's so encouraging because it reminds us that God has been faithful and consistent through all of history. And so even in the right. Old Testament, we have his faithfulness where by faith, those in the old covenant are still grabbing hold of Christ as it were. And that's no less real than it is for us on this side of the cross. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. Yeah. That's a really beautiful thing. So I'm also in the new Testament, new Testament. I'm also, I'm in the new Testament as well. I'm also in the old Testament for a significant part of this week. And I've been really enjoying and kind of sinking into Israel's conquest of the promised land. And one of these things I just really failed to appreciate was just how consistent we see the type of Christ in everything that God does with his people, even in administrative details that I think on the face just seem like God being gracious. And they are, but it's that graciousness still pointing to Christ. And one of the things that really just caused me to go into deep doxology this week is reading about the cities that were set aside for the manslayer. Because I thought yeah. in this, here we have an example of God saying to those who, you know, find themselves in a situation that is truly tragic and awful. Here is a place where you can go and be protected. Here is, as it were, the strong tower that is Jesus name where you can come and be saved. And I was just blown away by that, that everywhere we see Jesus being represented as the one is the only name under which under heaven by which man may be saved. And here's a physical example of, you know, sin, as it were, the one that pursues us because we are born into this natural realm with the natural man that is full of lust and the pride of life and only wants what is death and destruction. And we commit that by our very nature where we have no choice. And here, as it were, God sets a city apart for us by the Holy Spirit in the death of Jesus Christ to go into and to be saved. And I yeah. was just blown away by what a wonderful example that is, even in something like as God is, is setting out the land and is just determining where people are going to live. He makes a way and that way is yet another type for Jesus. Yeah. And even to take that a step further, that person is safe in that city until the death of the high priest and then he gets yes. free. Right? Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just for the record, I didn't make up that thing about the prophets. Uh, it, it's sort of a weird paraphrase, but it came from Amos 3.7. It says, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So I Beautiful. think I'm on pretty good, put good ground to say the prophets understood the secrets. I trust so. you. I trust you implicitly. And just so that we don't get a ton of correction mail, I'm assuming you were talking about Nabal before in terms of Abigail, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. I just couldn't remember his name. Yeah, he he's a he's a weird character. He's like you know. I'm he's just the, gonna translate his name and call him fool. Yeah, I pity I pity the fool who doesn't feed <laughs> David's servants when he comes. Who doesn't when he comes feed to David. ask for food? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, just a quick reminder: we are in the midst of a contest. We're gonna be giving away some uh, sweet gear from confessionalware.com. So hit us up at reformbrotherhood.com/contest. We'll be drawing uh, for six items towards the end of the month. And Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh. What if I'm fine?